right, welcome to the uh, Guardian Strong podcast. We're here at the very first episode of the inaugural run. I'm Rick Greeno. I'm Mark Redman. I'm going to be your host. We're going to be taking you along for our journey a bit, if you will. Um, just a little bit about me. I'm a 17-year police veteran here in Vermont. I'm a patrol sergeant in a uh, mid-sized municipal agency. Uh, working the night shift, graveyard shift. Wouldn't have it any other way. Mark, tell us a little bit about you. Um, I'm a 23-year police veteran, currently a supervisor, uh, police sergeant, and I've also had a career with the U.S. Coast Guard between active duty and reserve, and I've also acted as an EMT for a little while. I should say act, but I guess I was a certified EMT, more likely. How long were you an EMT for? About four years. Made it through one uh, recertification cycle. Gotcha. So you kind of seen and done it all, really. Yeah. Jack of all trades, master of none. So, Mark, I'm going to put you on the spot first while I fiddle around with some of this technology stuff that we're still sorting out, and I'll ask people to Let's bear, do it. bear with us. It'll get smoother as we go, hopefully. But uh, talk to me a little bit about your your interest in, in what does is, what is Guardian Strong mean to you, and, and sort of how did you get here? Uh. You know, it was one of those things where I've listened to a ton of podcasts, um, been listening to them for a long time. You know, I'd take car rides down to Newport, Rhode Island, where I was doing my reserve time with the Coast Guard, needed to occupy my time for that five-hour ride, and just kind of settled on listening to a variety of different podcasts. So that's the initial thing that got me interested, and I you know, peer support's kind of always been one of those things that interested me because by my nature, I'm a pretty calm, relaxed person. I don't typically like chaos. I'm, you know, I like the opposite. I like to calm things down. I like to walk into, into a situation and calm things down. And that kind of translates into... Hey, Mark, chicken or the egg, did, did those traits bring you to this profession or do they come out of you being in this profession? I think it was a little bit of both. I mean, I've never been a super confrontational person, you know, and I've think I've always been pretty laid back, but I think both of my experience in, you know, the military and policing, I think it's probably brought that out even more. Um, you know, and I think it translates into, um, translates more into uh, wanting to help our officers who are experiencing stress and trauma. Is that something you've done informally so far, formally? Uh, I probably started out informally, you know, to have people come and talk to me and, you know, vent their problems and, you know, just kind of debrief and talk about, you know, calls we've been on and whatnot. Um, And then at one point, the department was looking for a couple people to get certified as peer support members. So put my hand up, got selected. I became one of the first peer support members of our department and it's kind of grown from there. Interesting. So just a, yet another disclaimer, Mark and I uh, have known each other. Well, my whole career. In fact, Mark was part of uh, my hiring process. feels like a hundred years ago, the first agency I worked for. Um, he also was my, one of my field training officers uh, when I started out. So Mark and I have been down this road for a long time. 
uh, together. It's yeah, buddy. Cool to, it's kind of cool to find ourselves uh, at similar similar parts of our career now, looking looking down the not so distant road to retirement and That's right. what comes next. And it's coming. One can hope. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get interested in uh, peer support and yeah, podcasting? So, well, uh, so podcasting was certainly twofold, but I guess the, my first interest in peer support came through my own experiences. Uh, 2018, I was involved in a line of duty shooting, fatal line of duty shooting, experienced some PTSD after that, uh, that incident and was in a small agency that, that Mark and I both started out with, uh, that didn't have a peer support team. There weren't a lot of, uh, supports or experience with that type of trauma. Um, and of course, Trauma is something that, that first responders don't talk a lot about. I think you're mm-hmm. hearing about it more, you know, the last couple of last couple of years. Um, it's almost been kind of taboo back in the day. I think it still is to, to some extent. And, yeah. you know, I think uh, there are some organizations out there talking about trying to, to get rid of the stigma of, of mental health and law enforcement, right? It was always, and I guess we can go on this tangent in a little while, but it's that the whole idea of, hey, if I admit that I'm having a hard time with something, they're going to put me on a desk, which for most cops is the, the kiss of death. Like yeah. it's the thing they fear the most. Um, and it's a fear of, you know, maybe looking weak too. Right. Well, right. I don't want my, I don't want my colleagues to think that I'm not going to back them up. Right. I'm not there for them. Um, or that I'm not going to take care of my own stuff, but circling back that, uh, that experience for me, uh, I, I found myself sort of wondering what, what what can I take out of this uh, and make it a positive experience, right? So, you know, somebody somebody died, you know, so I, I didn't want that to be for nothing uh, other than, you know, going home at the end of the day. Um, so I ended, up, I ended up at a new agency probably two and a half years after that incident. And when I was hired there, I had, I had a pretty in-depth conversation with... Uh, the lieutenant who hired me and, and was adamant that I wanted to be involved in peer support. And he's like, well, we don't have a peer support team, so build me one. And that's kind of what I've been doing the last almost two years now. Nice. What kind of training you've been to? <laughs> Train. So I went to training's hard to find. It's hard Can to be. find like definitive peer support training. So you find these, some trainings that, uh, give you skills that will help you with peer support. So I, I went to uh, SISM training, critical, critical incident stress management, mm-hmm. which is sort of the bedrock of a lot of the peer support programs nationwide. Uh, and I've also been to, I'm a certified compassion fatigue professional, they call it. So compassion fatigue is one of the newer terms in uh, trauma in mental health, particularly around first responders. And if you think about it, Mark and I have talked about about this previously, but uh, if you know a cop and you've known them for a long time, maybe from the beginning of their career until they get 10, 15, 20 years on, they change. There's a definitive change you see. They get a little grumpy, a little less patient with people. And, you know, we used to just attribute it to older age and, right. you know, I'm tired of the salty old cop, you know. Right. Well, I mean, certainly there's probably something to that. But I think also what you're seeing is is compassion fatigue. And I think the best way that I can describe compassion fatigue is I, I liken it to a sponge. A sponge has a finite capacity to hold liquid. And at some point, 
it no longer absorbs any more liquid. It can't hold anymore. I think people are essentially the same way. Yeah. And if you're not wringing out that sponge periodically, if you're not processing some of that trauma. Yeah. And I remember when you first brought it up that you were going to that training and I kind of didn't believe what you were telling me as far as compassion fatigue. I'm like, what is that? And I got to thinking about it after we talked to talked about it for a little while. And I started looking around at the officers that I work with and you see it plain as day. You know, it's that negative attitude. It's the, you know, the being toxic, you know, and it's not, I don't think it's any fault of the officer really. They just haven't been trained to handle it or, or even, or wring that sponge, so to speak. Right. Like I might think I'm just, I'm grumpy, right? Yep. But why? Is it the job? Is it what's going on at home? I, you know, I, I, and I'm curious, I haven't, I haven't read a ton about compassion fatigue. I certainly want to read some more, um, but I, I would strongly suspect, uh, that's compassion fatigue is a large component in the divorce rate among first responders. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might lead to increased alcoholism, all those other right. sort of negative yep. coping mechanisms that, uh, absolutely first responders tend to tend to lean to. Long story longer, that's kind of how I got into it. My my sort of retirement plan, I, I just got accepted to grad school. I want to get Congrats. a master's degree in mental that's health awesome. counseling. Uh, and, and when I retire, I want to work with first responders who uh, experience trauma and PTSD. Um, I had a therapist after my incident who was a, a former police officer here in Vermont. Uh, and I found it incredibly helpful to sit across the couch from somebody who understood the job. Yep may not have been involved in a, in a fatal line of duty shooting, but certainly understood the risk and, and just the lifestyle. And it made all the difference in the world for me because I didn't have to build that foundation, right? I didn't have to waste Mm -hmm. three appointments explaining why shift work is difficult, why it impacts my family in this way. And, you know, and and he walked the walk and and did the job. So there's there's that, that inherent trust in that. And it just made it easier for me to trust him and be like, all right, I can, I can open up to this guy cause he's, he's been there. Yeah. And I was in the, you know, I've obviously have never been in an officer involved shooting, but I got to a boiling point in my career where I was struggling at work, struggling at home and finally decided, okay, I need to reach out and talk to somebody. And the uh, counselor I talked to, former cop worked for my agency. So we had that credibility so when I could sit across from him and talk to him, I knew he knew what I was going through. That's very helpful. Yeah, I think I, I do, Mark. I think for for me at least, that made all the difference in the world, and I want to I want to be able to offer that to other people. But I think that's something you and I, as peer support team members, can offer our colleagues yep. now. You know, Definitely, I don't think you need to be a licensed therapist to be uh, empathetic and supportive. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I don't know about you. I'd be curious to hear what yours, Mark, and I work at different agencies, they're neighboring agencies, but, uh, and, and, and the uh, peer support program at, at Mark's agency is more established. Uh, mine is brand new. I wrote the policy. Uh, and I find right now my biggest challenge is rolling it out. Yeah. I get a lot of, Oh brother, peer support, or it's, it's a joke, right? It's a, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's a, it's a punchline to picking on somebody, you know, Joe comes in complaining about something at home. He's like, Oh, it sounds like he needs peer support. And you know, it's cute. But at the same time, it's a little, 
it makes it more difficult. I, I want to figure out how to normalize that. Well, and it reinforces that stigma too. Right. Right. So in my whole, and I've had this conversation with my chief and my lieutenant, my whole plan the first year or two is just to normalize the conversation. I want them just to hear peer support, peer support, peer support. You can expect to be contacted by peer support for X, Y, and Z. Whether you think it's affecting you or not, we're going to reach out, we're going to call, we're going to text, we're going to... We had uh, uh, an untimely death in town, somewhat traumatic experience for a couple of newer officers. Mm -hmm. Uh, nobody was referred to me, but I reached out. Like, right. hey, I heard you guys had a tough call last night. Do you need anything? Is there anything I can do for you? Nope. Good to go. Okay. I want that process to be normalized. It's sort of the first step in squashing that stigma, at least yeah. within my own agency. Yeah, definitely. Now, in my agency, I think the stigma is slowly going backwards, which is good. You know, we've, you know, I, it's not uncommon for me to get a call at home being, hey, we had this happen. Can you get peer support rolling on this and whatnot? I'm like, yep, got it. Mark, how long do you know how long your peer support program has been active? Uh, I want to say probably six years ish. So, so we're in that time a frame. Decent time. Yeah. Yeah. So we we started out. Uh, myself and another officer went to, uh, I think, a two or a three day conference. Um that was put on by a, a lot of different mental health groups. Um, our, the state police was a big, was a big backbone in that. And, uh, they brought in a whole bunch of people, which was, was pretty neat. And we got to talk to a lot of different clinicians, a lot of different, uh, EAP people, which is that employee assistance program, um, that's available to people. So that was the initial, training we went to and then we had um the uh, clinician we're contracted with now has a center and he specializes in all this traumatic stuff and we did a five-day training with him and eh, was it five day maybe not but we definitely went through you know what is trauma you know where does it stem from the the effects of the brain you know and all that the technical stuff of the background of it and then we did, I, so I think the next one was a five-day training that we did on, um, oh, I'm going to rack my brain here. Oh, traumatic uh, stress relief, which, you know, taught us a whole bunch of techniques to when you have a person who's definitely suffering from trauma, how to help calm them down, how, you know, kind of calm their mind down and uh, get them in a better headspace. Mark, I assume your your policy also like definitively describes when and to involve your therapist. Your your so uh, for my peer support program, and I suspect yours as well, uh, we're required to have clinical oversight. Yes, somebody with some license to do this work that I, I can refer my colleagues to. Yep, because I am not currently a therapist, nor do I play one on TV. So. <laughs> uh, so I assume your, your your policy has the same sort of... Yeah, we have a kind of a matrix we go through. And our policy is kind of in redevelopment now, trying to refine it and get it a little tighter. But So, uh, you know, I'm going to sort of 
try and back this conversation out just a little bit because it is our, our inaugural podcast. So I want to try and cover some bases, but also just paint a picture of where this is going to go, where we think it's going to go from here. Right. Nothing hard, nothing fast, nothing will be set in concrete, but you know, we're sort of learning as we go, but are very passionate about, um, we, we call it warrior strong, but I, I, I think it's fair to say that it's, it's first responder focused as opposed to police focused. Sure. Most of our experience is in law enforcement, but we yeah. work alongside fire and EMT folks all the time, literally every day. Yeah, I think one of the things I'm looking forward to is thing I'm looking forward to is talking to interviewing other professionals in first response, mm-hmm. whether it be the firefighters, EMTs, military people, you know, and kind of getting that broad range of uh, experiences and see how each agency you know tackles it. Um, Mark, I'm wondering, so compassion fatigue is relatively new to you do you think that's something you might be interested in bringing to your team yeah definitely some some training in, yeah like, i think e- it'd be even really just helpful. being more familiar with what it is and recognizing yep. it and I, I, again i'm 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 uh, i've become a bit of a zealot when i believe in something and and i think i've really sort of focused on compassion fatigue is is the hot button right now i think and in responder wellness. Yeah. And I think if I could bring that to my department, that might, uh, you know, change some things for people. Talk, talk to me a little bit more about that. Well, I think people just don't, aren't maybe, maybe not be aware of it. And I think bringing that awareness out would be pretty helpful. I'd also be curious to know if that would make them more or less willing to be open about what's going on. True. Right. Yeah. Like, Oh, I'm not crazy. I have this thing going on, you know, my, my sponge is full. And again, I'll, I'll use that reference a lot and I apologize. You'll all get sick of hearing it, but it's just the best analogy that I've been able to come up with to, to describe the way that I understand compassion fatigue. Uh, I've noticed <laughs> I took the training this time last year and I've noticed I suffer from it greatly. I used to say that, you know, it's sort of a cop joke, but I, I no longer like people. But really what I don't like is, is dealing with, the same types of problems over and over and over and over again, particularly yeah. with the same people. Right. But that has less to do with not liking people and more to do with my inability to, uh, experience it without owning it, so to speak. Yeah. And I think, you know, it takes, you know, to be able to recognize that, you know, where your patient's level is, you know, I've noticed that, there are days where my patience is really low and there are days where I can be patient all day long. And I know that's something also I need to focus on as well as my patience. Cause it shows up in other areas of my life, like driving. Right. You know? I think that's an interesting point. I think you and I are fortunate though, in being shift commanders, shift supervisors, we're able to adjust our activities, uh, to sort of shield ourselves from that probably a little more than the frontline officers can. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't have an area. Typically I, I supervise people who have areas. So therefore I, if I'm fully staffed, I don't have, I generally don't have calls that I have to be responsible for. I assist them with theirs. And And as supervisors, we can kind of get that thousand foot view of everything, kind of step back, look at things, 
where the officers are focused, a little more focused on the, the incident at hand, we can step back, kind of remove ourselves for a minute and be, okay, what does this situation need? How do we resolve this? Almost you know, without problem focusing solve. on the people as opposed to the situation as a whole. Right. Yeah. Because I know that, you know, it's really easy to sort of get that tunnel vision when you get locked into, I'm sure you have people you work with that just quickly get locked into yep. almost like that power struggle yep. as opposed to what is the issue? How do we resolve the issue in the most fair, efficient, useful way possible so that we can all move about our day? Yeah, definitely. Interesting. So that's kind of our soapbox a little bit, Mark. I think so. I, I too have, you know, some, some ideas about people I'd like to interview. Uh, I'd like to interview the clinician that oversees our peer support yeah. program. Uh, she is fantastically supportive of me, uh, of my, my career aspirations, but also of the program and sort of helping me. I'm still, I feel like I've been rolling this, this peer support program out for a year and a half now and have not finished. Yeah. I, I honestly don't have a completed, uh, completed policy as yet because every time I submit it, it, it gets returned with, Hey, what about this? So mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh, I didn't even think of that. Or, you know, we have an EAP, uh, an employee assistance program right. down line. Do we want to incorporate any of that? So then I added some of that language. Yeah. I'm just trying to, it's almost too much is too much sometimes. And, mm-hmm. and I want to leave it sort of as wide as I can, as opposed to overly narrow, but she has some really good ideas once we do roll it out. Um, of, you know, getting together a couple of times a year with the staff. Yep. Both to sort of bring out their sponge, but also to maybe do a 45-minute training on something two or three times a year. And yeah, it's a great idea. Again, just squashing that stigma, trying to introduce some things, and just get them thinking about wellness, their own wellness. Right? We're, we're tasked with caring for people, other people, all day, every day that we work. You can't do that if you're not caring for yourself. Right. For me, that's sort of where this circles back to big yeah. picture wise. And I think, uh, you know, future episodes, you know, we can discuss some of the uh, traumatic stress relief techniques, get a little more in depth in that, talk a little bit about EMDR, which is the uh, eye movement. I, I actually experienced that uh, following my incident and was really resistant to it. One of the interesting things about EMDR is that for it to be effective, you have to essentially re-experience that trauma. Yes. So that you can figure out what, you pinpoint what the most troubling part of that trauma is. And basically, uh, my layman's understanding of the science is that you're creating a different pathway in your brain. You're teaching yourself to react to that particular trauma in a less traumatic way. Uh, and and my, my therapist described it as a path. You're yeah. Creating a different sort of hiking path for that for that trip. Uh, but in order to do that, you have to you have to be vulnerable and, and sort of re-experience. So that was that was really challenging. I mean, I was pretty open to it because I've seen it. Ha- I've seen it work. I've seen people go through it, and uh, it was interesting because when I did it, I was focused on one area, and it took me in a totally different direction and got me to the real root of what's going on. And we'll talk about that more in depth later. Right, which is also pretty common in EMDR, yeah. but also it's pretty common in trauma. Yeah. A lot of it is more underlying that we than we suspect. We we focus on the end of the needle, but you know, how did you get there? Yeah. You know, and sort of what programmed you to respond that way. 
we have uh, ideas for tons of interviews. So I think people who uh, follow us and listen to these podcasts will hear a bunch of different perspectives on a bunch of different topics. We certainly will be open to suggestions from listeners once we get up and running and, and sort of get the nuts and bolts figured out. Uh, but I think Mark, that kind of that kind of closes it out for me. I think so. It sort of touched all the bases I was hoping to touch tonight. So I think I think that's probably a good place to stop. Yeah. Anything else you want to add? I don't think so. I think we're good, man. Great. So we will uh, be back shortly with our next episode, which likely will include an interview. Uh, I have some ideas that uh, Mark and I'll kick around and, and figure out, but I, I do have some interviews about compassion fatigue and, and trauma. I look forward to our, uh, you know, we'll put out probably Facebook page. So you'll be able to catch it on Facebook and we'll put out announcements and throw out the little teasers maybe to our guests. Yeah. We haven't quite not. come up with a, a schedule yeah. of how often we want to, we want to pop these out. And part of that of course will be listener dependent. Please spread the word. Let's all work together to sort of squash the stigma and, and be well See stay you. healthy thank you everyone for tuning in to the pilot episode of guardian strong podcast for rick reno i'm mark redmond be well and stay safe out there <laughs>